Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. We continue our series in the Gospel of John with episode 49. Last week, we looked at the question, who wrote the fourth gospel? This week, Dr. Kostenberger is going to be looking more deeply at the connection between John and the other synoptic gospel writers, namely Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's no secret that John wrote a very different account of Jesus' life and ministry than the synoptics. For example, only 8% of synoptic material is found in John's gospel. So, if John did write the fourth gospel, why did he choose to write such a different account? Dr. Kostenberger addresses these questions and more in today's episode, so listen in now to part two of our series on John's Gospel, John and the Synoptics. Before we delve into chapter two, you may find it helpful if we spend a moment to locate John's Gospel in relation to the other Gospels. By the way, I'm teaching a master's level class on Jesus and the Gospels right now, and even though I love John's Gospel, I also greatly appreciate the other three. Um, As you look at these five units, you'll quickly realize just how unique John's Gospel really is. Matthew and Luke, just looking more broadly now, include accounts of the virgin birth of Jesus as part of their birth narrative. Both feature the Sermon on the Mount, or plain as it were, including the Lord's Prayer, They recount Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God, especially numerous kingdom parables, and Jesus' Olivet Discourse on the end times. Matthew and Luke also include a final commissioning of disciples. Matthew ends with a great commission, uh, while Jesus, as you know, writes a whole other volume, the book of Acts. Amazingly, John doesn't include any of these things. No virgin birth. No Sermon on the Mount, no Lord's Prayer, no teaching on God's kingdom, with one very minor exception, no parables, no demon exorcisms, and no end-time discourse. Instead, John features seven signs of Jesus, as well as seven witnesses to Jesus, and seven I am sayings. I could almost get the idea he likes the number seven. He also features Jesus, as we've seen, as the pre-existent word become flesh, includes the upper room or farewell discourse, which is entirely unique to John. He has Jesus' final or sometimes called high priestly prayer. And he discovers many ironies and misunderstandings during the course of Jesus' ministry, which I believe is the functional substitute for the parables. Finally, he presents the entire story of Jesus as a grand cosmic battle against the powers of darkness, in particular Satan, the ruler of this world. He also says, as I briefly touched on uh, in chapel, that Jesus' glory can be seen not only at the transfiguration, but throughout his ministry, and says that those who believe in him have already passed from death to life, his famous realized eschatology. 
So while John omits an awful lot that the synoptics cover, he also adds a great deal of new material. I think about 92% is unique. Not to mention beloved characters, some of which we'll be talking about uh, in just a minute, uh, such as Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, the man born blind, or Lazarus. Scholars debate whether John knew about the three earlier New Testament Gospels, and if so, if he'd read all or at least one or two of them, primarily because his gospel shows so little overlap with them, as I mentioned. In fact, the critical scholarly consensus today is that John wrote independently of the other gospels. You might call the radical independence view. A reaction against the traditional understanding that John did know the synoptic accounts but chose to write his own gospel, perhaps to supplement or replace them. Uh, in an article published a few years ago, however, I've argued that a radical independence view is highly implausible. As we can see from Acts and the New Testament epistles, the early Christian movement was a close-knit network, a holy internet, as one writer has called it. I like that, a holy internet. I find it almost unimaginable that someone of the stature of the Apostle John would have been unaware of the existence of several earlier Gospels, and that if he was aware, he would not have wanted to read them before writing his own Gospel. So then, some of you may ask, if John knew the other Gospels, then why did he make so little use of them? That's a fair question. My answer, in short, is theological transposition. Theological transposition. By that I mean that John was not content merely to restate what the earlier Gospels had already competently and accurately set forth. Rather, he assumed much of the content of the earlier Gospels and transposed various theological motifs theologically to bring out the underlying significance of particular aspects of Jesus' person or work, just like in Music, you may transpose a tune into a different key, and it sounds just a little bit different. Still beautiful. Take Jesus' miracles, for example, and if you want more, uh, you can read an article I've written, published in a scholarly monograph, and posted on my website, where I list as many as 20 such Johannine transpositions. Here, I have time to only talk about one. And this will be a very pertinent example since, as we'll see, the Cana cycle features as many as two or three of the seven signs included in John's gospel. So looking at, at John's signs globally now will help us save a lot of time later when we study chapters 2 and 4. And there are no signs in chapter 3. So the word used for miracle in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is dunamis, dynamite being a derivative, later, a powerful work. The focus in the synoptics is on Jesus' authority over the natural and supernatural world, including sickness, nature, and the demonic. Now, what's the only sign that Jesus gives to those who oppose him in the synoptic gospels? It's the sign of Jonah. 
being in the belly of the big fish for three days and three nights, which Jesus implies foreshadows his own crucifixion and resurrection after three days. Now look at what John does. He never uses the word dynamis, not a single time. Powerful work, but instead selects seven messianic signs of Jesus. First, turning water into wine at the Cana wedding. Look at that in a minute. Second, cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. Not everyone agrees that's a sign, but um, I'm going to argue that this is an intervening sign in Jerusalem. Third, healing the, the, the Gentile centurion's son. So all three of those, almost half of them, are in the Cana cycle, which we're studying right now. Fourth, healing the lame man in Jerusalem in chapter 5. Feeding the 5,000 in Galilee, chapter 6. Sixth, healing the man born blind, uh, chapter 9. So the uh, signs 4 through 6 are all in the so-called festival cycle, uh, John 5 through 10, which follows the Cana cycle. Uh, and seventh, the climactic sign of Jesus, the raising of Lazarus, which fittingly foreshadows Jesus' own resurrection. This theological and terminological recasting, I believe, is anything but coincidental. In all probability, it is deliberate and gives us a fascinating glimpse into John's thought world. John's seminal insight is that Jesus' miracles are not primarily a display of his power, but a demonstration of his messianic identity. In other words, people may have marveled at the displays of Jesus' dazzling ability to, perform, uh, to transform water into wine, or even more so to raise a man who had been in the tomb for four days and was already exuding a strong odor from the dead. But they may still have missed the ultimate purpose of that particular feat, namely, to lead them to believe that the Messiah, the Son of God, had come in Jesus. So remember John's purpose statement? Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, John was highly selective. Uh, lots more miracles in the other Gospels. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The miracles are signs. The miracles are messianic signs. So to miss their significance, the way they point to Jesus' true identity as the God-sent Messiah and Son of God, is to miss the very purpose for which they were intended. So what in the Synoptic Gospels is presented as evidence for Jesus' comprehensive authority as the messenger of God's kingdom, as Jesus says at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, John presents as signs, as acts pointing beyond themselves to who Jesus is. Now that's what brilliant theologians do. Help us see the significance of certain events in deeper ways. And incidentally, when I was working on that article on Johanna and transposition, I'd already finished the article and then came across a section in Kevin Van Hooser's book, The Drama of Doctrine. Uh, where he describes what theologians do. And he was exactly what I said John did in transposing various synoptic motifs. Uh, he's perhaps the first 
um, preeminent uh, theologian of the Christian era, uh, along with Paul. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe all four Gospels were written by men who were historically, literarily, and theologically competent and highly astute. But I believe John's Gospel comes at the apex, at the very peak of revealing the purpose of Jesus' coming and redemptive work as John could build on the material presented in the earlier Gospels, wrote a generation after them, and was the disciple, as I mentioned, who had been the closest to Jesus during his earthly ministry. So if you'd been looking for anyone to write the fourth final Gospel to be included in the New Testament, there would have been no one better than the Apostle John. In fact, Despite his characteristic authorial modesty, which is on display both in the humble title, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and in the conclusing phrase, I suppose, this is exactly the claim John himself stakes in the gospel. Take a look with me at a startling verbal similarity that makes an astonishing assertion regarding his closeness to Jesus. We've seen earlier that John says about Jesus in his prologue that, quote, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 1.18. Now, structurally, John's gospel neatly and symmetrically, as you know, breaks down into two roughly equal halves, often called the Book of Signs, uh, chapters 1 to 12, and all seven signs are found there, and the Book of Glory, or Book of Exaltation, uh, chapters 13 to 20, framed by a prologue, uh, we talked about uh, this morning, and an epilogue, uh, chapter 21. Incidentally, uh, Book of Glory is the more established term, uh, but I don't like it because it wrongly implies that we see uh, Jesus' glory only in chapters 13 to 20, which is not true. So I've taken the liberty to retitle uh, that section and called it the book of exaltation uh, because it presupposes Jesus' exaltation with God the Father and uh, the early Christian mission um, uh, superintended by the exalted Jesus. So uh, chapter 13 uh, kicks off the second half of the gospel. You even have a separate introduction or preamble uh, to that second half, uh, John 13, 1 to 3. Um, and uh, it's kind of similar to a play or a football game after intermission or halftime. The stage is set for the Last Supper. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and then reclines uh, with his, uh, at supper with his closest followers. At this, John tells us that, quote, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, at Jesus' side, John 13, 23. And the Greek expression used for a Jesus' side is an almost exact verbal parallel to the description of Jesus being at the Father's side in the prologue. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so, especially since at the end of the gospel, John writes, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who would also lean back against his chest or side during the supper. And it said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So 
John is deliberately casting the disciple whom Jesus loved, himself, in a position parallel to none other than Jesus. Specifically, he's implying that the way in which Jesus was closely and intimately related to God the Father resembles the way in which he, John, was closely and intimately related to Jesus. This closeness to God the Father in turn put Jesus in an ideal position to explain God and to give a full account of him. Just as John's proximity to Jesus put him in in an ideal position to explain Jesus and to give a full account of him. That's an astonishing claim. Add to this the fact that, as I mentioned in my first lecture, John is regularly featured alongside the Apostle Peter in the second half of the Gospel. Peter, of course, is presented in the Synoptic Gospels as the one to whom Jesus gives the key to the kingdom of heaven, and who was the preeminent spokesman of the twelve. But in John's Gospel, John shows his own preeminence when it comes to his spiritual insight and closeness to Jesus. So he's humble but confident, if you will. At the Last Supper, Peter asks the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's at Jesus' side, to inquire about the identity of the betrayer, 13, 23 to 24. So Peter is second to the beloved disciple because he has to to find out from him uh, who the betrayer was going to be. Then at the high priest's courtyard, it's again Peter who asks the other disciple to help him gain access to the courtyard. And that disciple is able to do so because he was known to the high priest's family, 18, 15 to 16. Then later on the resurrection day, when Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved run to the empty tomb, as I mentioned this morning, John outruns Peter, though he respectfully waits for him and lets him peer into the tomb first. And then in chapter 21, again, it is the disciple whom Jesus loved who first recognizes the risen Jesus, in which Peter jumps into the lake to swim toward Jesus. Lastly, the parallel characterization of Peter and John comes to a climax in the final scene where Jesus recommissions Peter three times after Peter had denied him three times. And when Jesus tells Peter that he will die a martyr's death, Peter asks Jesus, but what about him? What about John. In response, Jesus puts Peter in his place, if you will, and tells him in so many words to mind his own business. Though note that, interestingly, similar to the parallel characterization of John in relation to Jesus, the author also features Peter in terms parallel to Jesus, uh, just like Jesus, Peter would die a martyr's death and glorify God by giving his life for his faith. So John 21 19 uh, mirrors and echoes uh, John 12, 33. So you see in each of the five scenes in which John and Peter are featured together, it is John, the beloved disciple, who possesses unique spiritual insight or access to Jesus and becomes the gateway to such insight and access for others, even for Peter, who in the synoptics is cast as the preeminent apostle. This reinforces the parallelism between the evangelist characterization of Jesus in relation to the Father on the one hand and of John in relation to Jesus on the other. The bottom line is this. 
no one was closer to Jesus during his earthly ministry than John. For this reason, no gospel presents Jesus' person and work in a more perceptive and spiritually penetrating manner than does the fourth gospel. I believe this is what Clement of Alexandria meant when he wrote that John, last of all, composed a spiritual gospel. Not that the other gospels are unspiritual, but that John is particularly astute theologically and brings out the deeper significance of many of Jesus' um, actions and words. All right, I think I've made my point rather emphatically that, that it does indeed matter who wrote John's gospel. John had known Jesus like no other. He loved Jesus more than anything, and he wanted to share that love and spiritual insight with others who had not had the privilege of knowing Jesus personally during his earthly ministry. And again, I was just marveling this morning, thinking the close bond that I sense with somebody who lived two millennia ago, just because of uh, the witness that he bore uh, to Jesus. At the time of writing, as I mentioned, he was a man in his 80s who had seen many of his fellow apostles and other Christians die a martyr's death in witnessing to their Christian faith. He'd seen the Roman Empire persecute Christians, hurt them into the Colosseum, and feed them to the lions as in a circus. But he'd also seen the success of the early Christian mission. Christianity, belief in Jesus as Messiah, had spread from Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and the ends of the earth. He may even have seen incipient forms of the heresy of Gnosticism, which diminished the humanity or deity of Jesus or both. Perhaps this is why he insisted that Jesus was the eternal preexistent word become flesh. Now, for the second part of his lecture, let's now turn to the Cana cycle, which covers chapters 2 through 4. This is a good example of John not merely repeating information found in the other Gospels, but breaking new ground. Cana is not even mentioned in these earlier Gospels. Neither is Jesus' turning of water into wine. At the heart of a Cana cycle are Jesus' conversations with Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and the Samaritan woman, neither of which is included in any of the other Gospels either. So we have here rather unique material, though there is some overlap, such as the clearing of the temple. But even there, you have a very interesting twist. In the earlier three Gospels, Jesus is shown to cleanse the temple during his final week of ministry, just prior to the crucifixion. Here in John's gospel, he's shown to do so at the very beginning of his ministry, the first time he travels to Jerusalem for the annual Passover. Now, some such as Craig Kinder wrote a massive two-volume commentary on John's gospel, says, uh, John here engages in historical and literary transposition, not the kind I'm talking about. Uh, he, trans he transferred an event that historically happened at the end of of Jesus' ministry to the beginning for theological reasons. Now, personally, I rather doubt this is the case. When you look at the way in which John tells the story in chapter 2, the time markers are very tight. 
In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Greek literally says, not many days. And then in verse 13, he says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John gives every indication that he tells the story chronologically. I believe history and theology go together. You can't easily elevate theology and sacrifice history in order uh, to be more theological. Good theology respects history rather than changing or overwriting it. For this and other reasons, I believe it's more likely that John knew of an earlier temple cleansing by Jesus in addition to the one recorded in the earlier Gospels, and that he chose to include the former rather than the latter. Now, why would he do that? I believe the most obvious reason, at least to my mind, would be that John wanted to make room in his plot line for the raising of Lazarus, the seventh sign of Jesus, which forms the climax of his narrative. In the earlier Gospels, the temple cleansing is that climax. The final straws it were that broke the camel's back. Jesus frontally challenged the authority over Jewish leaders who were in charge of the temple worship and the sacrificial system, and it became clear that there was going to be a head-on collision between their conflicting interests and claims. Now, John, I believe, supplementing rather than contradicting the earlier Gospels, makes clear that Jesus challenged the temple establishment not just at the very end of his ministry, but from the very beginning. Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations Podcast.